faith, love, and hope. These were the three virtues which made the church in Thessalonica shine. So that when people looked at them, what they saw was the gospel, the good news. At the very start of the letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Thessalonica, right away he began with gratitude for the faith and love and hope that he saw God bringing into being in those people. And then at the end of the letter, he comes back to them because he knows the most important thing he can encourage them to grow in is the kind of work that is faith, the kind of labor that is love, the kind of steadfastness in hope that shows the truth that with Jesus all is well. At the very end in chapter 5, and that's what we're going to look at today. You can open your Bibles if you have them to that place, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul pushes his friends to grow again. And what I'm going to do this morning is to push you in the same way. And, And I'm going to offer help today to see what it looks like by sharing with you three ordinary disciples that God put in my path years ago. Young people who showed me what it looks like to practice faith, love, and hope. Kathy, Leonard, and Nick. Let's look together at the beginning of the fifth chapter. And here we're going to see that Paul's challenge comes in a discussion about Christ's return. Verse 1 reads like this. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. The times and seasons refers to the day of the Lord, when Jesus will return and everyone will stand before him for judgment. The folks in Thessalonica don't need to have anything written to them because Paul had already taught them about it when he was there together with them in person. But he does bring up one fact which has become important for them because at this point, there was a misunderstanding that had begun to spread. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they were together, Paul had taught them that no one can know when Christ will return. Just like a thief comes when you don't expect him, you can try all you want to calculate when, but it cannot be done. And Paul needs to remind them of that fact here because apparently after he left, there were some religious teachers who had begun to spread ideas about Christ's return that were both wrong and dangerous. Look at verse 3. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. Okay, there were teachers in the first century whose motto was there is peace and security. Do you know about the Pax Romana? That 200-year period of extraordinary prosperity, order, and social stability all over the Roman Empire. That time period 
uh, began before Paul wrote this letter and ended afterward. He was writing this right in the middle of that time. And what everyone in that region believed is that everything was okay because of the power of the emperor. Peace and security was essentially a political motto. It was a political slogan that captured the worldview which everybody would have believed. And it was this, everything's going to be okay because the emperor will provide everything we need. Now and forever, just be a good citizen and don't worry about anything else. Now that was the prevailing outlook when Paul was in Thessalonica and when he wrote this letter and certain teachers there were saying, don't concern yourself with when Jesus returns. It doesn't matter and probably Maybe he'll never return after all. And that was the outlook, which was both wrong and dangerous. It was wrong because Jesus is our security and our peace, not the emperor. And it was dangerous because the truth is, like a thief, at an unexpected time, Jesus would come back. And there was no chance that it could be stopped any more than a pregnancy and a birth could be stopped after the labor pains begin. The return of Jesus, according to Paul, is absolutely inevitable. Once it starts, there's no stopping it. And for those whose security is placed in anything other than Jesus, that will be, according to Paul, a day of ruin. We, we learned earlier that one of the ways these folks had changed is that they put their hope in that day, they put their hope in Jesus. And for all who trust Jesus, there is absolutely nothing to be concerned about whatsoever at the day of his return that will be purely and forever a day of perfect joy. A day when his grace and mercy covers us and we are altogether secure. For those who put their security in anything else, that will be a terrible day. It will. It will be a day when everything they hoped in crumbles. If, if there is a person who hasn't yet decided emphatically to say, in that day I hope in Jesus, now's the time to do it. Uh, if your faith has waned and you've begun to hope in other things, set it aside and say, Jesus is my only hope. That's the only way I'll be okay. When you do that, then you can trust that that day will be a day of glory and it will be wonderful. Uh, here Paul addresses these folks to remind them because of this new teaching. And then he goes on to press the message even further. Look at verse four and five. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. This is Paul's way of saying, that's not who you are. Have you ever had a teacher who says something like that to you? My best teachers were the ones who, after I made mistakes, came to me and said, hey, listen, this isn't you. And that's what Paul's saying here. There is the day and light, and there is the night and darkness. You are not of the darkness, you're of the light. And the reason that you are of the light is because when you opened your heart to Jesus, the light of the world came right into your heart. 
Even when you were running away from God into the shadows, he loves you so much that he pursued you all the way in. And he came in person in the light that came into the darkness. You know, Jesus, the light of the world came into the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. You know that, don't you? And no matter how you run and no matter how dark it is around you, the light of Christ is in you by God's grace. This is the gospel. You were lost in the darkness and misery of your sin, but God's love was so great that he came and and he recovered you and saved you and he restored you so that you yourself would become in Jesus the light of the world yourself so that you could shine like a city on the hill. And when you trust him and when you believe in him, then you are who you are, which is a child of the light of the day, not of the darkness. And here Paul is reminding them, this is who you are so that they know who to be in this world, which is dark. Our world is dark. Don't you think we need to remember who we are so that we live in the way that we're meant to, which is as lights that shine as children of the light with that reminder in mind. Look how he continues in verse six. Here's where his challenge comes. So then let us not fall asleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who are drunk, get drunk at night. There is day and night. There is light and dark. There is awake and asleep. There is sober and drunk. These are Pairs of images that Paul uses to help them see what is difficult to see. Asleep and drunk are figurative depictions of a state of mind. The children of darkness are those whose minds are inattentive and closed off to reality. Dull and deceived into a false sense of security. Everything's going to be fine because the emperor has it in hand. Lacking a proper sense of urgency to be in the dark is to have a mind that is asleep or drunk. By contrast, children of the light are those whose minds are clear, attentive, vigilant, engaged with reality, and open to the truth, awake and sober. Here's Paul's challenge. Do not let your minds be confused or put to sleep by the influence of those in the world around you who will offer false security, who will say, everything's fine. Don't let yourself go into that slumber. Instead, keep mentally awake and sober and then live today aware of Christ's return, not frightened by it, hopeful because of it, because you know your hope rests in him, but live each day with that alertness and that diligence so that you yourself shine the light. That's what God wants is for us to shine the light that the world needs to see, which has come to us by God's grace and which we now bear into the darkness. And that's why we need this same challenge today. Don't you know that so much of what you experience puts your mind to sleep? Uh, Leaving you as confused as a person who's had far too much to drink. Hasn't that been our experience with what we've seen happen culturally around us with all the different voices saying all the different things so that it's hard to know what to think. We need, as children of light, we need to come awake and to be alert so that we can shine in the darkness. What would it look like for us to do that? 
This is where we need to ask the practical question, which I'm absolutely sure Paul would have wanted his friends in Thessalonica to be asking, not just to hear some inspirational ideas, but to have a vision for how they might be this kind of light. Look at verse eight. Here's where the picture of it comes. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here are our three virtues. Here's what it looks like. It looks like defensive armor for a fight. Not offensive armor. Paul isn't saying get out there and attack. He's not saying that. A breastplate protects the chest. A helmet protects the head. He is telling these friends that in order to be what God means them to be, to walk worthy of God's calling, to be the ones through whom the gospel resounds in the world around them, to shine like a light in the darkness, they need to put on faith. They need to put on love. They need to put on hope. In the same way that you prepare yourself for a battle to be defended, that's what our calling is now. And that's what God wants when he wants us to keep growing. If we can envision what that looks like in life, not for someone else, but for us, then we can know how to live today. Here's where I want you to use your imagination. Can you picture how it looks to be someone whose faith shines? Have you ever been around someone whose love brings light like a candle in the dark. Do you know from experience what it's like to hope because someone else is so hopeful? Uh, here's where Kathy and Leonard and Nick are going to teach us. Ordinary Christians who God put in my life, who make it plain what it looks like to put on faith and love and hope. Let's start with faith. I met Kathy in the second year that I was doing youth ministry out in Red Bank. Her friends brought her to the group that I led. They were all friends from high-tech high school. This was a school for kids who were into science and who were really smart. Kathy was really smart. She wasn't a church kid. The, the reason that she came and kept coming back is because something in her heart made her open to faith. She always listened every time I talked, especially attentively when I spoke about Jesus. One week after group ended, she asked me if I would be willing to meet with her. I have something very important to tell you, she said. We met at Victory Park in Rumson. We sat on a bench looking out over the river. She had brought a Bible with her. One of the leaders had given it to her. I've decided to become a Christian, she told me. One of the first times I was at your group, you read a passage from the Bible. And that started a change in me that has, has come to the end, I think. She started to cry. Not me. I, I don't cry. She, she started to cry. She opened to Psalm 2710. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. 
Kathy's parents didn't care for her well. I didn't know the whole story, but some of her friends had told me how hard life was for her at her house. I used to resent my parents, she said. But the more I learn about Jesus, the easier it is to forgive them. I know they did the best that they could. Anyway, when I heard Psalm 27, it was like God was telling me, I'm your father. You are my daughter. I love you. And no matter what, no matter who in the world lets you go, I will never let you go. I will take you up. I know he loves me, she said. I trust him. I'm his daughter and I'm okay. That's what it looks like to put on faith. Faith is trusting. It's the decision to place yourself completely into God's hands. That's what faith is. It's accepting that he loves you, believing that he has your best interest at heart so that you are willing to go wherever he leads. That's what faith is. We are called to put on faith. You are called to put on faith. What would it look like for you to put it on? After graduation, Kathy got a full ride to Harvard Medical School. Because God opened that door, she went through it. In her second year, they had to choose internships. She went to South Africa because the AIDS epidemic was raging there then, and she thought that's where Jesus would go. Her postdoc took her to Hollywood where she worked with homeless people, again, because that's how Jesus guided her. And today, she's a doctor out in the Northwest. You and I are called to trust and believe and put ourselves into God's hands. Now is the time for us to put on faith so we shine. And now is the time for you to ask, and really to ask, what would it look like for me to do that? That's first. How about love? That's second. In 1994, I moved to Philadelphia, and I moved there to work with a group of interns who were serving at a school for kids from the inner city. There were 14 of us who lived in a row house on West Farragut Terrace. We had a routine every Thursday night where all of the folks in the house would gather around a great big table for a giant spaghetti dinner with meatballs. And if we were lucky and it had been a good week, we would have garlic bread too. (laughs) And we would talk and laugh together. Uh, There was one intern there, Leonard. Leonard was always early for that dinner so that he could help set up. But this week, I was sitting on the porch out front waiting for him because he hadn't come home from school yet, and that was very unusual. And then I saw him coming down the block, and he looked very upset. I asked him what was wrong, and he explained that on the way home from school, he had been mugged. He shouldn't have waited that long to leave. He shouldn't have been walking home by himself, he explained. I shouldn't have been walking the way that I was. A man came out of an alleyway, and before he knew it, there was a gun pointed right in his face. Leonard didn't have any money, and so the man demanded to have the watch which he was wearing that had been given to him by his grandfather. It meant a lot to him. But none of this was why Leonard was upset. He explained to me, I could tell he was in bad shape. He looked hungry to me. And so I told him about the dinner that we have on Thursdays about how there was space at our table 
and I invited him to come and be my guest at the dinner. He just looked at me and gave me back my watch and walked away. Leonard was sad because the man was so hungry and didn't accept his invitation. <laughs> That's what it looks like to put on love. And we are called to put on love. And that's a very dramatic example of what it looks like. It's, it's not ordinary for any of us to face that kind of thing. But what's not extraordinary is the truth that all of us are called to love, which is using whatever power that God has given us for the well-being of others, no matter what that power is, no matter how small it is, without any expectation of a reward and without any hesitation because it's going to cost us a lot, even when the other person is unlovable, love is doing what you can to help. And now are the days for us to put on love like faith so that we can shine. So that when someone in your family comes against you with whatever aggression it is, you respond in kindness. That's what it looks like to put on love. Or when there's a need out there that you have something that enables you to meet it, that you do that, even if that person is someone you regard as an enemy. Or so when you're confronted by evil, love overcomes it with good, not with evil and kind. Put on love, and, and as you put on faith, in this way, you will shine like a light in the world. That's how God wants us to grow. Can you see it? Ask God to help you see it for you. Third is hope. Nick showed me and is still showing me what it looks like to hope. I met Nick in the same year that I met Kathy. He was a kid who hung out at the skate park. I spent a lot of time there, and we used to skate together. He was so much fun. We laughed together. We caused trouble together. I think I was less of an adult than I should have been, but it was a long time ago. We used to meet on Tuesday mornings at the Middletown Diner early before school, Nick and a few other friends, and, and we would talk about how we might grow as people of faith. It was hard for Nick for one reason. When he heard the gospel, he couldn't believe it because the part of the gospel that says God loves you just as you are seemed impossible for him to accept for himself. There was a voice in him that told him he could never be loved by God. Even when I tried to tell him that's exactly the heart of the gospel, that you don't deserve it. You're not worthy of God's love. There was something in him that made it impossible for him to hear. Have you known someone like that ever? That was Nick. After high school and after we lost touch, his strategy for managing that voice became really destructive. It turned into an addiction, drugs and alcohol. And that just about ruined his relationships with everybody, with the friends that we used to sit at the diner with. And eventually, even though she didn't want it to, his wife who after years of trying decided the only way to protect the kids was to divorce. In December, I got a text from a pastoral counselor that I know down in Red Bank. Christian, I've been meeting with a man named Nick. Says he knows you from the old days. Shared memories about youth group. He wants to reconnect. Would you be open to that? It was hard for me to believe that he meant Nick because Nick was a kid, not a man. But I said yes. And two weeks ago, I talked to Nick. Right here in my office, we talked for an hour. We laughed together, cried a bit. 
He told me how that voice of self-hate drove him so far away from God that he was ruined. Uh, he explained how many people he had wounded and how, how much grief he felt for that. But then he also shared how God's grace had reached out to him when he was hopeless to enable him to be sober now for many months and to begin working at repairing relationships. Uh, there was joy in his voice as I listened. He described how his deliverance could maybe even turn into a career where he would be useful to God as he helped other people out of addictions. And then, best of all, he told me, I've been working really hard at repairing my relationship with the mother of my children. I still love her so much, Christian, he told me. She's why I'm fighting so hard. She hates Valentine's Day, but I sent her flowers anyway, he told me. And then he said, she wrote me a card. I want to read it to you. And I asked him if I could read it to you guys. Nicholas, although I don't care much for this particular holiday, I'll use it to express my pride and gratitude I'm increasingly proud of you for how hard you've worked to be the man you are today. It fills my heart with joy to see you reaching potential you've always had for success. I'm grateful God answered my prayers and that with each step forward, you improve not just your life, but ours too. It is both inspiring and impressive to see how you turned your life around, and I only pray that this wonderful man is here to stay. Love, Kate. That's what it looks like to put on hope for both Nick and Kate. Hope is letting God's promise of future restoration shape your life in the present. It's trusting that God works all things together for good when we love him, even the trials of my life. So that instead of giving up, I'm ready for another day. Not because I can manage it, but because I trust that with God's help, I will become the man that he means me to be, which I'm not yet. And to go on working at that because my hope is founded on him and his faithfulness, and he's trustworthy. Where can you put on hope like that? Now's the time to do that. The world needs it. That's how we will shine God's light in the world. Like Kathy shined God's light through her simple steps of faith for me. Where is God calling you to do that? Or like Leonard was bold in his love to overcome evil with good. Where is God calling you to put on love like that? In your home, at work, in your school, wherever. And like Nick, even today, is starting again and hoping and working at it. Trusting that God's restoration in, in, in the future is for him right now. God wants you to see that and then to put it on for the battle that we're in so that we shine. Let's ask God to help us and, and, and trust that he will.
God, I thank you so much for putting people like Kathy and Leonard and Nick in my life. I thank you for each one of them. I pray that whatever they're doing right now, you would bless them. That somehow your spirit would fill them to keep at it the good work that they've been up to. And I thank you for their stories which inspired me and I ask very simply that they would be an inspiration to each and every person who hears my voice right now so that each one of us are able to be who you've saved us to be, children of the light, no longer children of the darkness or of the night, so that we can shine alert and awake, so that we ourselves can be the light bearers that Jesus told us we were when we trusted him, so that we can make progress, we can still go on growing in these virtues that are meant to characterize who we are as your people. God, please grow faith in us. Please grow love in us. Please grow hope in each and every one of us and in all of us together. God, and now we thank you for what you're going to do because we trust you. And we thank you for this church, which is your church, for Renaissance Church. We thank you that in this time, you've invited us to be a part of what you're doing here. God, keep helping us grow and then use us however you intend to. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen.